This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 442 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Shelton Stevens. Now, Shelton has a collegiate strength and conditioning training background and recently transitioned into training the tactical athlete. So we discuss a host of topics from education in the sports science world to strength and conditioning elite sporting athletes, the application to the tactical athlete, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, 
subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Shelton Stevens. Enjoy. Shelton, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Oh, man, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you? (laughs) I am in Carthage, North Carolina, Um, you know, surrounded by pine trees, and the pollen is killing me today. (laughs) (laughs) So if you hear any any sniffing, that's the reason Oh, yeah, that's why. That's why. (laughs) All right. Well, I'd love to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. So I was born in Virginia. Um... And right, right on the outskirts of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, so I was grew up a mountain boy. I, uh, my dad, I have, let's see, four stepbrothers. Um, I had a stepsister and I got a half brother on my mom's side. But, you know, it's funny when I had nobody asked me this before, but I'll bring it up. So my father has seen two of his sons die of cancer and his daughter die of cancer. Um, oh and I can't, God. I can't imagine as a father seeing my children pass away, you know, it's not, not how it's supposed to go, you know? And what's, what's the history of, of those cancers? Is there anything you can look back and, and think might have been a causation? I, you know, I think it might be, hopefully I'm thinking it might be from their mother's side. Um, and you know, dad, he's almost 87 years old, you know, so he's lived a healthy life. His, his dad lived a pretty long life. His mom lived till she was like 99 years old. So I th- hopefully it's from his, his, uh, his mother's side or, or their mother's side. Um, cause she, she recently died of cancer, his ex-wife. So I'm thinking it's, that's where it's coming from. Wow. So yeah, one of the ar- areas I'm sure you're very well versed in working with the tactical population now that I like to talk about a lot is the mental health side. Yep. So how has he dealt with grieving over and over and over again like that? You know, it's, it's interesting. Me and my wife talk about it all the time. He's, um, he hides it really well, but we've seen as he grows older, him really come out and, and get upset a lot, you know, when he's alone and he starts talking about that, especially his daughter, right? His, uh, you know, she was 42. Um, so she was really young. It hit her lungs and it hit her brain. Um, and she, you know, she, it it hit her pretty quick. So when he talks about his daughter, he gets upset a little bit and I think it's getting worse as his age, but he has to stay busy, right? If he's outside, if he's working, um, it helps a lot. Now, if he's cooped up in the house and watching Fox news and especially during the winters, it's, it's, it kills him, right? Like it's all he thinks about. So it's, it's work has really helped suffocate that pain, I think. Yeah. Well, it's something I see in, in our professions too. And it can be, it can be a healthy thing, keeping yourself busy, but also it can be, a way of not dealing with that trauma too. So you absolutely, know, if you process it, then I think busy is good. But if you if busy is running from it, it can be detrimental. Absolutely, and I think uh, you know I think he's done a little bit of both. You know, I think he's been open about it, and also think he's been running from it as well. Right now, yeah. what did he do as a profession? So he worked 
um, at DuPont in a factory for about 40 some years. Um, but he grew up on a horse farm or in a tobacco farm. So he grew up on a farm. Um, that's what his dad done. And yeah, he worked in a factory 40 some years and then retired. And then he kind of worked little gigs here and there. He worked at a convenience store. He worked as a security officer again, just staying busy. Um, so yeah, he's all he's known is work, right? So that's what he loved to do. And all I remember as a kid is hearing him wake up at, you know, two 33 o'clock in the morning, get ready, go to work. He comes back at, you know, four o'clock and he has a little bit of time to spend with us, but not much. And he goes right back at it again. So, I mean, it's, it's just, I've never really, and we just talked about this when they came and visited me and my wife. And I don't know if it bothered him or not when we talked about it, but I, I told him, I was like, you know, you really never taught me how to use my hands, you, you know, work with tools because um, you were so busy with work. You know, now he, he loved being around us in sports. You know, we played a lot of sports and that's what that's what his thing was. Right. Like he had built batting cages for us and, and, and everything. And he enjoyed the sports side. But it was the other stuff I wish growing up now as a mature adult. Um I wish I learned more about tools and working and putting stuff together and stuff that I could hand down to my kids, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, says, that phrase, uh, work-life balance seems to be bounced around a lot, but it's very true. I think that generation, you know, it was, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of thing. You know, there's this, this if you were a man and you worked all hours, God sent. And now I think we're realizing that that, just like you, you, you touched on before, the detriment of that is the lack of time with the family and the lack of, you know, even, even passing on skills. Because my dad was the same. I grew up on a vet, uh, on a farm. And he was a vet veterinarian. So he was very busy and he, he did actually pass on a lot of farm stuff, but there were, there were a lot of man skills I had to learn <laughs> from it, other man. people too. And I'm doing that now. You know, my wife thinks I'm crazy, but like, I believe in trial and error. You know, I'm out here trying to do stuff now. I'm trying to pick up a, uh, a new hobby and start doing some bladesmithing and you know i'm out here trying to saw logs and flatten logs and build a stand and again if i do it wrong i've learned and and we'll pick up and try to find something else it's just stuff that i want to be able to hand down to my kids that you know maybe my father kind of missed the buck on a little bit you know yeah well i, I was just looking at a it was a gold cast video this morning and it was about the art of cooking and you know that's a very very interesting perspective too this last generation, you know, that we grew up in, not so much where I grew up because I grew up on a farm, we had vegetables and all that stuff, but a lot of families grew up with the TV dinners, the fast food, the eating out at restaurants. And I think that's another skill. We don't think of it as a man skill, but, you know, a, a no, it's skill. it's a skill for sure. Absolutely. It's, a, it, it's definitely a skill. And, and again, like, and you probably, you know, can relate to this is my mom was pretty much stay at home. So she was, it was an old fashioned home, right? Like now we always ate dinner at the table. There was always breakfast. There was always lunch. There was always dinner and big meals, you know, like we never went hungry. It was just dad had to work and he had to support the family. And mom had to stay at home and do the cooking and the cleaning. That's just the way it went. You know, that's how I was raised. And that's, you know, not to say that my wife hates the work, but she stay at home too. I mean, I think there's something to that. And she, believes in that you know she believes that the woman is the supporter at home and and you know she's you know she's religious and believes like hey like as a as a biblical woman like it's our responsibility to take care of the kids take care of the home and i don't think we would be together if she wasn't like that you know yeah it's very interesting i mean like you said she's able now to pass on that skill to your children you know, and whether it's a man at the exactly. home, woman at the home, both, you know, whatever it is, if we have a generation that doesn't know how to cook, we have just set our kids up for failure when it comes to their nutrition. 100%. 100%. 
Right. Well, you mentioned about your dad building batting cages. So tell me about your athletics as a child. Yeah. So, you know, pretty much played all the sports I could football, baseball, basketball, track. Um, you know, it obviously got, you know, it started to narrow as I went older, but, you know, my dad coached us when we were kids and we, we, you know, we played up all through little league and, um, I pretty much started play football and baseball as I got older and got scholarships for both sports out of high school, but decided to go the baseball route and, um, got a scholarship to Barton college in North Carolina and I left and I was probably there for about a day or so because I didn't want to leave my girlfriend back home. So I was one of those guys. So basically, uh, went back home for a little bit, um, Ended up breaking up with that girl, obviously, just probably like everybody else, and was like, okay, it's time for me to get serious about my career, and um, I want to move down south to Florida and play baseball like I've always wanted to do, and that's what I decided to do, so I picked up and um, was able to walk on and earn a scholarship at Palm Beach Atlantic University, and that's where I got my bachelor's degree down in Palm Beach. Brilliant. Now, um, with uh, with the career aspirations that you, you went to play baseball when you were younger, did you have any other aspirations as well? What you wanted to do ultimately? You know, I, that sports was pretty much my life. Um, you know, I look back and it, it was all we knew, you know, it's all we done. So I really, really didn't have an option, you know, now I don't know. I've had this discussion with pe- my parents is, you know, is I don't know if I really, really loved baseball. You know, it was just something that we just done. And, I, you know, was it the right thing to do? I don't know, because I went to a private university and ended up in debt and ended up just paying my loans off a couple of years ago. Like, was it worth it? I think I had some good experiences and learned a lot. But at the same time, I mean, would I have maybe enjoyed something else? I don't know. It's just kind of we, we didn't even really have time for anything else. Yeah, I've had this conversation with quite a few people and, and definitely some coaches. And what I, I went to, to London to university for two years to sports science and then finished up my degree in UF here in uh, Florida. And, you know, again, that, that costs a lot between the two of them. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, you go to the NSCA and you get your CSCS and it costs, you know, what, oh, a grand, yeah. a grand and a half. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was a better training through the NSCA than I got through my whole sports science time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's college is, uh, I don't know, man, it's a slippery slope. You know, you hear it all the time on other podcasts and other strength coaches talk about it is, you know, we end up getting an exercise science degree and end up getting our, you know, certification. And it's like, what does that stuff really matter at the end of the day when we talk, when we compare it to practical application and getting on the floor and actually coaching, you know, I mean, that's what really matters. I maybe use 5% of the stuff that I learned in college. And obviously, it depends on your professors and, you know, the program. But at the same time, I mean, I learned everything from experience and being on the floor and getting my ass up and coaching my, my ass off. That's just the way it, that's just the way it needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned about playing baseball for um, the school in, in Florida. So tell me about, you know, how that went and, and what ultimately stopped that dream. Yeah, so it's. I loved it down there in Florida. I mean, again, you can play baseball year round. Um, some of the best baseball is around in Florida. I mean, you talk about, the, you know, the Dominicans are down there. I mean, my whole team was was pretty much full of Dominicans. And, um, you know, I had to compete for spots and also kind of learn a different language or try to learn a different language and try to communicate with these guys. And it was a good challenge for me. And plus, we were 
our university was right on the waterway. We were close to the beach. I mean, it was a college life, right? That's, I mean, that's, I definitely enjoyed, you know, my three years there. Um, but then, you know, later on, I realized that possibly this isn't something that I want to pursue past college. I mean, I've had a, I had a couple teams want me to try out um, at the professional level uh, my senior year. But, you know, obviously I had a setback when, you know, I had my orbital um, crushed by a fastball right to the face during a scrimmage. Um, you know, it made my eyes sink. I had double vision for like three or four months. And then I had a choice to make if I wanted to redshirt or if I wanted to start my career in, you know, in the college scene. And then that's where I got the opportunity to uh, to work at Florida State in my first internship. Wow. So because I knew you had a career ending injury and I was going to ask you, because when you were leading me through your early life, it's, you played multiple sports. So, you know, that so that your training didn't really factor into the injury that you got. With you, with all the experience you have, and we'll get into the collegiate level. Um, when you look back now, what is your philosophy on athletes, especially young athletes, playing multiple sports to to foster resilience against injury? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that has to contribute to why I was pretty much so healthy through my career. Is you know, we stayed outside when we were kids. We played as many sports as we could. Uh, we were never pressured into playing sports. Um, and again, it's we know when baseball season was over, it was on to the next sport and then on to the next sport. We constantly stayed busy. We constantly stayed outside. I think that had a lot to do um, with injury prevention and, and, and staying healthy. And I think every kid should be able to, one, have the choice to do what he or she wants to do, but at the same time, shouldn't be pressured into one sport. Because, again, these kids are so young and they're specializing in baseball at a young age or football. At a young, it's just we see so many Tommy John and shoulder injuries and, and elbow injuries. And these parents are like, Hey, like, you know, taking them to special camps when they're young. Like it's just, it's just too much. It's too much for these kids and just let them play, let them enjoy their life. It's going to, you know, it's going to pay off in the end. Yeah. Well, to me, it almost kind of factors in that same group as, as the overworking, you know, if these Absolutely. parents are at work, but then, yeah, these kids are constantly doing travel ball and camps. And I think, you know, if you, if you have this kid that's a, a phenom, of course you want to, you want to give them an environment to succeed. But I think there are, there's a lot of people living vicariously through their kids and, and they're not playing anymore. It, it's a, it's a, a drudge for these kids to do these training and these camps. So we have to find that happy medium between nurturing, you know, the athleticism of your child and driving them into the ground with it. Yes. And that's the thing. Like you drive them into the ground. Um, and, and I think it has a lot to do with education um, and educating these parents as well, like spending these money at these camps um, and taking them to certain playing travel ball and, and take them to certain parts of, of the states is, hey, these these camps, you got to realize like these colleges and these camps are, are taking your money. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make money. Um, maybe one lucky player or, or kid will get noticed. Um, but at the at most, especially these winter camps, do not go to winter camps. I mean, and, I, and from experience, again, I've worked in college. I know what these baseball coaches are thinking. Like these winter camps are for their assistants and their interns to make money. It's not to be able to get noticed in a camp. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I've always found weird is, you know, we have so many, you know, young athletes in each state, especially like here in Florida, where there's such a dense population. The notion that you have to travel to different states in the U.S. to find competition, I think, is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you Absolutely. Should, there are it, it so really many is. good people around you. Yeah. I mean, again, like some of these kids, 
that, you know, their parents can afford travel ball. And some of your best players are out there playing stick ball out, you know, in the backyard and they're, they're just as good, but they just can't afford it, you know? So again, it's, it's getting out there and finding it and, you know, being a good recruiter. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Florida State. So tell me, tell me what made you kind of to take that turn and start looking at the coaching um, perspective. Yeah. So uh, my exercise uh, physiology teacher, he pretty much was like, hey, I think you may be interested in the strength and conditioning profession. Um, here's what you have to do. And he pretty much said, you have to apply to all these internships and see if and you may get an answer. You may not. But here's a list of schools in, you know, in Florida. And if you want to, you can reach out to other schools, you know, out of state. And that's exactly what I've done. I probably emailed 100 plus schools. And the only school, which was crazy because I grew up a Florida State fan. So it was meant to be. Um, only school that that contacted me back was Florida State and was like, hey, um, you know, we are looking for interns. Your resume looked pretty good for the most part is exactly what we're looking for. Somebody fresh and young to come in here and, and work their tail off. And basically I, I interviewed for it and I was lucky enough to get it. And I ended up going up there that summer, um, the summer, pretty much it was the summer before my last year at college. And I stayed in one of the assistant track coaches storage closets at his house. That's, that's where I lived for the summer. Um, he cleared out his closet, pretty much his, his closet. It's pretty much an oversized closet is where I laid down a mattress and slept and, and pretty much stayed all summer and worked my tail off from like, you know, 4.30 AM to 8 PM. So it was, it was very interesting. And what kind of athletes were you coaching then? Oh man. Uh, so I tried to help out with as many as possible. So I was assigned to football, obviously, right? But that took up most of my time. But I helped with track and field, baseball, soccer, volleyball was a big one. And I think that's it. But I tried to stay as late as I could. And also I taught an adult class to make a little money um, that night. So I tried to help out but as much as I could. And I tell you what, it's just that was my first introduction to real Division One athletics. And man, when I walked in that weight room and I saw those athletes, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, you have some really, really, really talented athletes at that level, especially at the track and field level. I think they just came off like their third national championship. And seeing, seeing some of those athletes um, was just it was shocking to me because, again, I grew up in a small country town in Virginia. I never seen anything like that. So I was like, man, like this is really how it's supposed to be. And that's what kind of got me hooked. Well, with you uh, coaching a diverse spectrum of, of sports, did you see any common denominators with the men and women that were, you know, functioning at this high, high level athletically? What do you mean by that? Like just comparing like the lower level athletes to high level athletes? No, actually with, with, with the high level ones in each of the different disciplines. So even though they're doing different sports and using different skill sets, were there some, you know, what made those men and women or boys and girls, um, be able to get a place in that team when no one else did? Yeah, I think the number one thing that I saw is, you know, obviously specialize in their sport, but at the same time, you can tell that their overall athleticism is light years ahead of, of others, right? Like you could probably take a track athlete and maybe get them out there and play around with the soccer ball, and they could probably pick it up pretty quick. The, the, the way they can pick up on things um, from a coaching aspect and, and what they can learn very quickly in the sport is what separates them. You know, I mean, again, like we had a track and field athlete in there um, demonstrating a triple jump one day, and then he wanted to demonstrate how he could dunk a basketball. And it was, it was just unbelievable, right? Like they, they were just, they were just freakish genetic 
genetically gifted athletes. And I think it just kind of carries over into different spectrums of sports. Yeah, well, with that genetic gift, what about their why? Did did you did you see that burning desire in the highest performers? Yeah, so the ones that again, track and field was kind of more of an individual sport. So what I, it, track and field is very interesting because you know the ones that really earned um, you know national championships, made it into the Olympics, they were the ones that stayed extra to learn from the coaches to get that extra training in. And, and it was very noticeable. Right. And I didn't know anything. I like, I didn't know who these athletes were until I left and I saw like, Holy crap. Like I just, like I was next to that guy coaching him up and now he's in the Olympics. And there's a reason why, like that was the guy that was always a gym rat getting after it and he wanted to be better. So there was a lot of correlation there. Beautiful. It's a very interesting perspective. So after your internship, then lead me through when you actually started, you know, being paid to coach. Yeah. So after my internship, I went back to graduate, um, graduate college. And then what I'd done from there was I was lucky enough to get a part-time position at Wofford College in South Carolina. Um, and this job was very interesting because the, the football strength coach basically wanted me to help with football. And then he just wanted to, to do football, wanted me to help with all the other Olympic sports. Now, again, this is a part-time position, but it's really, you're working full-time hours. So, um, I had to pretty much go around and, and talk to every Olympic sports coach and, and see what they wanted from a programming perspective. And again, these coaches don't care if you're part-time or not. Like they, they want everything to be specialized to their sport. And, and you think they think that you're full-time with their sport and, um, you know, they're hammering you with all these things that they want. And you're talking about like 15 Olympic sports here. And I'm getting overwhelmed because I've never dealt with something like this before. Right. And, you know, I tried my best and we, uh, I was there for a short while, and then I was lucky enough to um, land another internship, which I couldn't turn down at uh, Louisiana State University. They were just coming off a national championship. And I was talking to my father and, and other people. I'm like, hey, like, should I leave this part-time gig for something like this? And they were like, you're dumb if you don't take this opportunity to go work for Coach Tommy Moffitt and um, learn under Gail Hatch, the Olympic USA coach, and, and be with those athletes. I mean, they just come off the national championship, so all the spotlights on them, like, you need to go. So that's what kind of made me pull the trigger on working another free internship. Um, and I think that's what – I think that job was what propelled me um, to the next level for sure. Because after, after that internship at LSU is when I landed my first full-time assistant gig because I skipped the whole – graduate assistant position. I went from being an intern to a full-time assistant um, and earned my master's while I was an assistant. Was that at LSU? That was at Nova Southeastern University. Oh, it's funny. That's where my wife's about to go. She's in the uh, optician, I mean the optometry program down there. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, Nova was awesome. That's where I earned my master's degree and, and, you know, I loved it down there. A great university. Beautiful. And when the master's in strength and conditioning? Uh, master's in athletic administration. I wanted to change it up a little bit. I, uh, I wanted to wanted to get something else that could maybe again, if I ever want to change routes, you know, be an athletic director or you know work my way up into the administrative level. Um, I wanted something to help back me up. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, as you're going through this journey, uh, which kind of governing bodies, you know, like NSCA, did you decide on, and and why did you choose those particular ones? So the CSCCA was a governing body that I decided um, decided on, basically because of what you needed to do to take the test and be eligible. I like that you needed to work a internship and get a certain amount of hours under a master strength coach. And then that would, you know, you were able to be eligible to take the test because the test has also a practical aspect to the test as well. I mean, you have to get in front of 
tons of master strength coaches answer questions um, and they're hammering you. It's almost like a board interview. Um, that's what attracted me. Whereas where the NSCA, pretty much you get a bachelor's, you get an exercise science, and then you can take the test. Anybody could take it, you know. Um, the CSCCA was, uh, was, was appealing to me, and that's what kind of made me jump on their body. Beautiful. So then lead me through where you, you know, what kind of athletes you started coaching at that level. Yeah, so Nova Southeastern was, is a Division II university, um, and it was a little different at the time, and we, we didn't have an athletic-only weight room, so we had to share it with the entire university. So we just had to work in the rec center. So what we would do is block off a little corner in the rec center, during the afternoon hours for our athletes to train well you know during the afternoon hours we know that's when everybody pretty much in the at the university wants to go into the fitness center well you know people started complaining and fussing and i'm like hey why don't y'all sign a petition and let's get it to the president and let's let's you know open his eyes up and make him realize like this is a problem and that's exactly what we've done so we were able to get a huge list of names to sign and be like hey like we need an athletic only weight room because this is a problem. So once it got into the president's uh, hands that it was a problem, boom, it, it was done just like that. I mean, it was, it really helped us kind of propel us forward at Nova. Um, and again, I think I was like 23 at the time. So I was in charge of designing a 5,000 square foot weight room. I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> you know, no idea. And um, it was very interesting to kind of sit in those meetings with the architects and the graphic designers and work on the logos and the wall murals and get a full outfit of uh, equipment in there and flooring. And I made a lot of mistakes uh, my first go around at designing a facility, but it was good experience. Yeah, which uh, brand did you go with with the equipment? <laughs> I went with Hammer Strength at the time. Hammer strength. Yep. So it was, uh, again, it, hammer strength wasn't bad equipment at all. Um, we went with infinity flooring. That's when the, the flooring was kind of with tiles. Um, and that the, the tile tiles was definitely a mistake when it came to the flooring. Just um, lift up. Yeah. Lift up. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Well then, um, walk me through then to how you found yourself working with the military. Cause I think that's where, you know, the, the, the real interest for our, our, uh, audience comes in. Yep. So the uh, the job that I had before here was at Liberty University. Um, I was there for two and a half years, working as the uh, the Olympic strength coach there. And um, pretty much some things happened where they wanted to make some staff changes. They hired some new administrative people in, and they wanted to make a change. And when that happened, me and my wife enjoyed Lynchburg, Virginia, so much where Liberty is. Um, I was like, you know what? Like I'm so tired of moving around all the time. Um, we need to look a different route. And what happened was one of my buddies, this, this, this connection came from Summerstrong. One of my buddies was like, Hey, there's a ton of military positions about to open up. I think you would be interested. And what's funny was this was before I even left Liberty. Um, I was interested in getting the TSAC certification through the NSCA. And I was like, you know, I just want to learn more about it. And funny thing was, is, you know, I got my connection through Summerstrong, um, ended up, you know, working, connecting the dots, ended up interviewing for a position. And, um, I was blessed enough to, to get it and we had to move pretty quick. Um, they got me an initial security clearance so I could hurry up and start working with the guys. And, um, from then on out, man, it has been a blessing in disguise and it's, it's, it's unbelievable what, uh, what I get to do on a day to day basis. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned Summerstrong. That's kind of what I was uh, wondering if the answer was going to be for the initial facility equipment that you use. So, are you a big fan of Soronex now? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'm good friends with Bert. Um, I I designed two facilities at Liberty University, the Olympic weight room and the track and field weight room, and both of them are outfitted with Sornex. I, yeah, I, I highly, highly will. I'll I'll never go anywhere else. That's for sure. Beautiful. Yeah, Bert was on the show a while ago. I think his stuff is incredible, and he definitely seems to align very closely with the tactical population too. Yeah, absolutely. So you have all this background in collegiate sports, then you're training Olympic level athletes. So what was it like when you first walked in and started, you know, you were faced with these tactical athletes? What were some of the biggest uh, kind of aha moments for you as far as the differences between a sporting athlete and a tactical athlete? Yeah, I, uh, I think having experience with, you know, diversity in college really helped me um, when I first entered the, the, the military. Um, but I think the number one thing that really shocked me was that it's completely optional for these guys to be on our program. Um, they don't have to, to use our programming. I mean, they can do kind of whatever they want. So from that aspect, you know, we have to really, really, really learn how to communicate, get guys on board, get them to buy into our programming. Um, and that's where that connection piece comes in. I mean, again, you can program all day long, but if you don't connect with these guys, you know, they might not stay on your program at all. You know, they might go do something else. So I think that was the number one thing where I'm like, okay, like I really, really, really have to, the program is the easy part. It's the other part that you have to, you have to really concentrate on. Cause if you don't know how to communicate and connect, you know, that's the missing piece. So that's very, very important. So that was probably the number one thing. Number two thing is probably that when it comes to energy system development, I mean, you do your basic sprinting and conditioning in college. Um, here, it's, it gets really specific, right? These guys might be training up for a five-miler, a two-miler. Maybe they might be training up for a big hike in the mountains. I mean, again, you have to really, really adapt to what they need to work on. And, you know, we didn't really learn that much about energy system development in school. Um, and we really didn't dive deep into it in college. But here, I mean, it's really, really like – the lifting, the lifting aspect is, is the easy part. It's really designing this energy system development programming is, is what's key. Yeah. So just to be, um, you know, without being too specific, the, so this is the special operations in the Army. Yes. Right. So yep. I think what's very interesting for especially the fireside firefighters is, you know, just like you're saying, we don't need that explosive strength to last 10 seconds. We need to be almost as strong 20 minutes into a fire. So... What is the difference as far as programming with, say, some of your strength athletes in the the athletic space and the strength endurance side with these uh, tactical athletes? Yeah, I think when when they say they don't need power, um, you know, I think they're missing the boat there. I mean, it's, it's it cannot be neglected, right? Because they're not getting any younger. So as the older they get, um, the more their power is going to decrease, and they're seeing that in, in our some of our performance physicals, right? I mean, we do mid-thigh iso pull we do some force plate jumps and we do that for a reason we want to see if they are severely declining if we're seeing a trend of decline or if they're just kind of holding steady which is kind of what we want because the decline i mean that's going to happen right is we're trying to stop that decline from happening too fast and you know some guys might be completely on the anaerobic spectrum because they played college sports and they might be explosive. And there's some that just, again, they came out of high school in the military and all they are, are just linear in nature. They just run long distance and they have no, no strength and no power at all. So again, that's where that performance physicals, all that testing comes in handy because again, we show guys like, Hey, like obviously you got here from being just an elite, elite soldier, you know, and this is what you're good at. Well, 
Again, as you get older, that stuff might not help you. You might need to, again, work on more of the power spectrum. Um, so we kind of, again, that communication has to be there. We kind of share the results with them. And that's the difference there because they're all over the spectrum. We just got to know, you know, where we need to hit most, what we need to stay away from. Maybe we need to touch stuff here and there. It just all depends. Yeah. Well, you hit on an important point that I've talked about a lot, which is so many traditional programs, I'm doing air quotes here, um, you know, encompass us all like all human beings are exactly the same but you have the strong men you have the triathletes you have such a diverse group um so what you're saying through your lens is that you treat each athlete differently and you test them for their strength and their endurance and wherever the shortcomings are you're going to bolster and then you're going to try and maintain their strengths absolutely every program i have about 70 close to 70 programs running right now and every one of them is different in their own nature yes so, I mean, again, I'm, I'm contradicting what I just said, but as far as uh, common denominators, with the strength side, what are the, some of the go-to movements that, that you find are very beneficial for the tactical athlete? Yeah, so basically, I mean, again, we're going to stick with our basic movement patterns. Now, again, I said movement patterns and not exercises. So, you know, our squat is going to be in there. Our hinge movements are going to be in there. So, again, it might be – you know, it might be back squat, it might be box squat, it might be goblet squat. Again, all these guys, it just depends because our age range goes from anywhere from like 28 to, to upper 40s. So some guys don't need a bar on their back and, and they need to be spine loaded. They might use a, you know, a pit shark or a belt squat. So again, we, we don't neglect movement patterns. They stay in there. So the bigger your t- exercise toolbox is, the better. That's where Again, if you're a young strength coach and you're and you're getting one of these gigs and you're just and you just know back squat and you just know front squat, that's going to hurt you because these guys, some of these guys are afraid of the barbell because again, when they touch the bar, they got hurt and that's what happens. See, is is they have a bad experience with the bar and they don't want to see it again. Well, that's where it's like, okay, you have to gain that confidence back and get them to realize, like, hey, like maybe it is okay to use the bar, but maybe you need to widen your stance a little bit. Maybe you need to use a box. Like that's where we kind of, when it comes to exercise selection and movements, that's where we kind of throw those in. Yeah. I've witnessed that coaching with the deadlift. I I think that, you know, the bar is very, very low for a tall athlete, especially an older male, you know, not so mobile athlete. So the high, the high handle on the hex bar seems to be a great tool to use. The the deadlift, the, the hex, uh, the trap bar is great. We, we, all of our platforms have the, uh, the DC blocks. So every, pretty much every operator, um, elevates the bar to some aspect. So that way it puts them in a better position, even if we are using the barbell, right? So we definitely use some blocks. Um, we use a lot of above the knee, below the knee, mid shin work when it, when it comes to deadlifts and Olympic lifts. Um, we hardly lift from the floor with these guys. We have a lot of specialty bars, um, like the Duffalo bar, the yoke bar, um, especially in my programming, I run a lot of, you can call it conjugate, but I mean, again, it's, I try to use as many specialty bars with these guys as possible just for them to kind of one, it changes it up a little bit because they don't like boring, you know, boring programs. And two is, again, you know, they might have elbow pain or they might, you know, it, it's a good way to kind of stay away and work around those injuries. Yeah, well, it's getting back to that for a second. So from functionality, we're, we're bound to the height of the bar from the floor with regular bumpers on because of the, you know, the, the engineering of that particular bar, the design of that bar. So how, you know, how uh, uh, the best way of putting it for the for the average let's say six foot tactical athlete 
is that actually too low from a functionality point of view for a deadlift? So it, again, it, I hate the word depends, but it does depend because again, you might have a six foot operator who lacks ankle mobility or they can't just get down that position where you have another six foot athlete. Like just say it was myself. I can get down in that position with the bar on the floor just fine. So again, that's where like we kind of ca- call it the, the coach's eye because you have to be out there and notice those things. I mean, to me, you know, that beats any kind of, of, uh, corrective exercising like that to me, a correct exercise is a corrective exercise. So if you can keep your eyes on them and see, okay, you know, he lacks a little bit of ankle mobility. That's why his torso is kind of leaning forward a little bit more. I don't like him in that position. Let's raise it up, you know, two or three blocks. You know, that's where it's like every person is different. You know, and that's where, you know, not to bash any other programming, but it's hard to really dive deep into someone's program if you don't get to see them and coach them, you know? Absolutely. Well, another diagnostic tool that I like to use, um, you know, obviously you have to have to keep the weight minimal, but I think it's a very, it's an exercise, but I think it's a great diagnostic tool is the overhead squat as well. Now, not so pertinent functionality wise with you know, what we do, but um, do you ever use that as a, a diagnostic tool rather than just an exercise? Um, sometimes, uh, we used to use the FMS a long time ago. Um, that's kind of phased out a little bit. Um, we can see a lot of that stuff with just normal squatting because again, if they're having trouble with a front squat or a back squat, we can probably, they're probably going to have issues with an overhead squat. So we try to stay away from that. Um, now we'll do some different kind of overhead positioning when it comes to squats with like the landmine or the Sornex jammer arms you know, um, getting us in a better position. Again, you can still do an overhead squat at a 45 degree angle. It's just not vertical. You know, we might elevate the heels a little bit with the jammer arms. Um, the hands are still overhead, but again, you don't, don't have that stress from a vertical bar position. Um, so not a lot of guys are doing overhead squats, uh, in this setting just because again, just the nature of the beast, right? I mean, with, with rucking their whole career, they're sitting down maybe at a desk job, um, it's just it's just too much from them to go from that to strictly overhead squatting um, unless they're really, you know, doing a lot of soft tissue work and trigger point therapy and stuff like that, getting prepped for the lift, which does not happen because they go straight into the weight room. And that's the first thing they're going to neglect is the warm up. So, yeah. Well, speaking of that, I kind of skipped one important step. So tell me tell me about that. What is the uh, you know, what is the first um, you know, testing look like from strength and from uh, range of motion? Yeah. So our testing, we kind of, we bring them in, we do, a, uh, our PTs run a 1080, um, movement screening, which, which works a lot of with like, uh, rotation. Um, we, we train a lot with that. Our, we have a strength coach on staff. That's also a certified athletic trainer who tests a little bit of, that's where we test our shoulder mobility. Um, which, which is kind of a lying shoulder mobility test. He's not doing anything standing. It's just kind of seeing what internal external range he has. Um, something quick, that we can get them kind of in and out because again, last thing they want to do is be somewhere for more than an hour doing testing. I mean, they just, they, again, the, the, the buy-in factor has to be there. So all that, that psychology and that mental aspect plays a lot into, you know, the bigger picture. So we kind of run quick tests on them. The 1080 taste takes a little bit of time, about 15 to 20 minutes. The shoulder range takes, you know, not even three to five minutes. And then they go straight into their more of their, uh, their physical testing. Okay. And what does the physical testing look like? So, so the physical testing is we'll test grip. Um, so we'll do a grip test. We'll do a vertical jump test. They'll go into uh, a jump 
um, a force plate jump. Um, they'll go into a mid-thigh iso pull on the force plates. They'll do a uh, short shuttle, so we'll do a 5-10-5, um, and then we'll go to more anaerobic capacity. We'll do a 150-yard shuttle, um, and then they'll do a 1,200-meter time trial um, run, which will use that time uh, to develop their, their mass and work off percentages and, and run times with that. Right. And the grip test, is that a dynamometer? Yes. But, yeah. Okay. Yep. Interesting. All right. So which, then- is very, which is very interesting because I know it's a small test and it, and it don't take any time, but over time we've started to see like a little small downtrend in grip, grip strength. Um, and, and again, that's with, that's with all males. I mean, you can look up research out there that, you know, the, the men's grip strength is on a decline and the women's grip strength is, is on a rise because women are starting to work more and men are starting to work less, which is very interesting. It is. Now, what about um, <laughs> the correlation between grip strength and overall strength? Have you seen any, any uh, oh, trends yeah. there? Huge correlation there. Um, again, some of these guys that have the highest ISO pull numbers um, max out the grip test every time. Um, huge, huge correlation there. And I think people kind of neglect that. Um, and I think a lot of things that I pay attention to is how people grip the bar or grip the pull-up bar. Most of the times with, with people that do not put their thumb around the bar, they're compensating for something, um, and they have weak grip. So it's, it's very interesting to see that. Um, but yeah, to your point, it's, it, it, there's a definite correlation there when it comes to overall strength. Yeah. Well, I've noticed that with the use of straps too. If you, if you, to me as a, as a tactical athlete, you know, and I go, I'm not talking about the high, high level, crazy, crazy weights, but, um, for us, if you're not right, grabbing the bar regularly, then you're losing that entire grip. You know, if you're, if you're using straps or, um, and even, even like opposing grips to me, like the best way of us, of, you know, of, of working that grip is to be in the weakest position. So that way your deadlift is not just pulling the weight off the floor, but also working your grip at the same time. Absolutely. And that's why I'm a big fan of, uh, the double overhand grip, uh, with the deadlift because it's, it's kind of like a, it's an automatic kind of blocker there. You can only handle the weight that you can hold, you know, instead of the alternating with, with, again, a lot of people that use alternating grip, yes, they can lift more weight. But can you can you overhand grip that weight? You know, can you handle that weight? So we kind of we use a lot of double overhand stuff. Absolutely beautiful. Well, I noticed one of the certs that you have is functional range systems, and yes. I hadn't heard of that before. So tell me about that. Yeah. So basically, what that was is they came in. Um, we done a, a two day course on that, and basically, it's just kind of working in ranges that we often neglect as humans. Um, it's basic stuff, right? Like do we work in range internal rotation of the hip and, uh, full hip flexion? Like, do we ever reach full hip flexion and we're able to hold that and just in range movement? Um, I think there's a place for it, but at the same time, it goes along with anything else, right? Like, do we have the time to incorporate that stuff? Um, because that stuff to me, just like any kind of PT or athletic training, any kind of rehab is I'm a big believer in, if you're going to throw that stuff in, it needs to be coached up. You can't just put that in a program and expect them to do it, right? So, you know, you can't if you're if a guy's doing rehab, it's like okay, you need to do your eyes, Y's, and T's for your shoulder stuff. And if he, if it's just going through it half ass, then you're just wasting time. That I mean, that PT or athletic trainer has to be there and coach them up every second and make sure they're getting the most out of it. And it's the same thing with with the FRC. I mean, that stuff is very very difficult, uh, you know. And some some individuals can't even get in those positions, so it don't even work for some guys. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just with everything else. Do you have the time? Do you have the time to coach that stuff up? Do you even want to incorporate in your program? It's just, again, another tool that if I ever want to 
use it or I see a place for it, um, I can incorporate it. Now, what are some of the kind of injuries and or muscle imbalances that you're seeing, uh, you know, again, common denominators with some of these men and women that you train? Yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of neck, a lot of shoulder, a lot of elbow. We see a lot of that. Obviously we see a lot of, um, soleus and calf injuries, um, from running. And, uh, yeah, when it comes to the upper body, it's, it's like neck, shoulder, elbow. But again, the, the running aspect is, is we see it all the time. You know, it's too much too soon, um, when they're trying to come back from an injury or, or they're coming, you know, all of a sudden they want to decide they want to run a marathon, you know, out of the blue and they start running a lot and not with proper programming and, and boom, they end up with an injury. It sets them back for a month or two. It's just, we see it all the time. Now, one thing I've talked about quite a bit on here is, is, you know, the impact of our heavy, you know, work boots in the fire service on, you know, our, the human body and breaking it down. I'm a huge fan of uh, barefoot training when you can. What do you observe in the army with the effect of the, the footwear that they wear on their bodies? Yeah, it's, you know, at, at our level, these guys are pretty smart. So we see a lot of guys with some proper footwear and it's something that now, with our students that come in, the, the youngins is what we call them. Like they, they have a lot to learn, right? I think I, I tell them, you know, footwear pretty much is task specific, right? You shouldn't wear a running shoe in the weight room. You shouldn't wear a lifting shoe or a cross trainer when you're running more than, you know, two or three miles. Um, it's the same thing with, you know, if you want to use an Olympic weightlifting shoe, you know, if you need that extra range, you wouldn't wear that to go running. So everything's task specific. Now always preach, minimalist shoe with a little bit of cushion if they want to obviously if they can go barefoot as much as possible like you said i think that's huge contributor to why you know i have strong ankles and grew up you know with with you know no in, no knee injuries ankle injuries stuff like that because we're, we're outside barefoot all the time we were kids right i mean that's just what we've done and i think that had a lot to contribute to kind of up the chain injuries and we see that if we take the shoes off of of individuals nowadays one I mean, you got toes like overlapping each other. You have flat feet. Um, and it's just you don't see those toes spread out and that grip into the ground anymore because they just aren't used to it. They're in those shoe coffins. And it's just whenever they can get out of those things, they need to. But, yeah, we preach min minimalist shoe. Um, we don't like to see running shoes in the weight room. And, uh, you know, anytime they want to go barefoot out when we do a movement prep and stuff, we let them. Absolutely. I'm glad you said it. I mean, everyone I ask who's got a background says the same thing, but it's still such an uphill battle to make people realize. It really that, is. I still yeah. get ridiculed in the gym with my monkey feet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, <laughs> like that's, again, it's, that's the way it goes, man. I mean, sometimes people are just aren't blessed with beautiful feet, <laughs> you know. Uh, but my, it, my wife's in love with me from the ankles up, she says. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, you know, people think, well, I'm wearing an ultra shoe. That's, that's zero drop. I can wear that in the weight room. Well, you also got to pay attention to the cushion, right? I mean, the lateral stability, even ultra might be a zero drop shoe, but there's no lateral stability in the ultra shoe. So when you're talking about cutting or working on movement prep or some short runs or sprints, that's not the shoe you want. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, there's some good shoes out there that you can buy on Amazon or anywhere else that's pretty cheap that will, will last you a while. I mean, I'm a big New Balance minimalist guy. Um, I think they've definitely uh, gone the wrong route with some of their recent shoe because everybody's trying to be like the Metcons. The heels are a little bit too heavy. Um, they used they're to make terrible. A, I just oh, got the terrible. latest pairs. I'm like, this isn't minimus anymore. It's just no. the same old shit. The other no, ones are. I, I can't. Yeah, I can't. I don't know why. I guess it's you know, CrossFit's definitely. Uh, there's more people that that's obviously doing CrossFit now, and those shoes are very popular. And you know, they're trying to go where the money's at. And it's just uh, I still order. 
I still order, I think it's like the third or fourth minimalist shoe that's available on Amazon. You know, I need to make it just a big order and get like five pair because eventually they're going to be out of stock and I'll make them anymore. Yeah, I've got a pair that I've been hanging on for dear life and they're, they're beaten up and all scuffed from the ropes, yeah. but they're, they're brilliant. Yeah, they last. Absolutely. All right, well then, another area when it comes to strength and conditioning that I personally as a you know, low-level coach um, have found a great carryover for you know police, fire, those kind of professions is the strongman movements as an addition to you know, the weight room stuff. So what about you with yours? Yeah, so I like using strongman movements in more of our um, – aerobic days is what I call it. Now, obviously, you know, it might not be aerobic depending on where the heart rate's at and how long we're doing it. But I like throwing that stuff in on a conditioning specific day just to change it up, right? Like, um, you know, so for instance, for example, I might do farmer's carries every minute on the minute. So they'll go 30 yards every minute on the minute. I might do overhead carries. I might do stone carries, um, you know, sled walks, um, Anything that you can think of when it comes to the strongman conditioning is what I call it. Um, we utilize because it just, again, it, it changes things up. It keeps things fresh from a conditioning perspective. Plus, when it comes to grip um, and developing shoulder strength and stability and building a bigger back and a bigger yoke when it comes to which helps with rucking, um, that stuff is crucial. And I think, again, that stuff is neglecting. A lot of people don't do that. But that's basic strength. Like that is foundational strength and it's often neglected. So I try to throw that stuff in as much as possible. Big believer in that. Beautiful. Well, I was going to ask that. So I just went and rocked with Jason McCarthy the other day. He was the founder of Go Ruck. And that's something that I haven't done a lot. We have a pack on our back. You know, we, we walk vertically up, up, you know, multiple floors <laughs> in a building, but we don't yeah. really, you know, cross distance. Um, what are some of the, the go-to exercises to help build up you know, the overall, you know, strength and, and conditioning needed for a longer ruck? Oh, man, that's a great, that's a great question. We just talked about this. So I went with a long ruck with our guys the other, the other week. And, you know, it was very humbling. Um, and, you know, we were talking about it. And it's, it's, I think the only way to train it for something, especially if it's cross country, um, is you have to do it. You know, there really isn't any training up for that. Like, obviously, you have your strength training and, you know, you want to have some sort of strength level and you want to have some sort of endurance levels. But, you know, you can train up all you can use a Jacobs ladder. You can try to do step ups all you want to. Um, everything that these other programs try to say they're training up for, unless you go out there and do it and go cross country in your boots with a weight on your back, um, you're, you're not going to get the same. You don't get the same feel in the weight room than you do out out in the mountains. There's just no way. So I think the only way to really do it is to do it. Beautiful. Yeah, I think it's the same with us with stairs. You know, the best way to be prepared for going vertical, you throw your gear on, you walk stairs. Yep. Absolutely. You and, and again, you also have to you also have to throw in the stress factor. I mean, again, like if you talk about guys that's going through selection or doing some sort of testing, ruck test, like then you have to th throw in the stress aspect. Their heart rate might be a little bit higher on the day they have to do it when they're training up. So that's going to play a factor into how they, you know, what times they hit or, you know, if they're running out of gas a little bit sooner. Um, so again, a lot of things play into how that, how training should go. Right now with, with the stress, just kind of, um, reminded me of something I wanted to ask you. What about breathing? I'm a big fan of nasal breathing. As long as we're not talking about max effort, what's your philosophy on that? Huge. Um, I'm terrible at it. I, uh, again, I have a constant low HRV score. Um, and I find that anytime I really concentrate on breathing, even if it's before bed or if I really concentrate on getting my heart rate down between, you know, 
anaerobic sessions and intervals or high intensity work, um, it helps me sleep and helps me um, with my heart rate variability. And I think it's huge. I think any time that we can, you know, concentrate on nasal, nasal breathing or get back to nasal in, nasal out as soon as possible, obviously it's going to help drop your heart rate as soon as possible. And it's going to help you repeat bouts as soon as possible. And I think that's a huge contributor um, to people's recovery. And I think it plays a lot into technique, even running technique, um, you know, fixing somebody's breathing mechanics. If they have poor breathing mechanics, usually they're sloppy and they're running, right? We see a lot of that in our VO2 max testing. We see a lot of that in our 1200 meter time trials is the ones that's just huffing and puffing their technique. They're all over the place. They're not controlling themselves, which is a waste of motion. You're wasting energy. Um, and the ones that are breathing correctly and, and learning how to control their heart rate, you know, their technique is pretty crisp. And I think there's a huge correlation there. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most missed elements of an EMOM is once you're done with whatever work it is, that remaining, you know, 20, 30 seconds, that is a perfect time to work on getting the breathing, you know, controlled and the heart rate down. And then for us in the fire service, you know, we only have a finite amount of air. So an EMOM is a great tool. We force a door, then we relax, you know, or we search and then we, you know, have to... to use the hose line and then we relax and we find a victim and then we have to exert ourselves. But that undulation of work and, and, and rest, we have to be very mindful of. It's very, it's very important. I think, you know, I think the worst thing to do is, is I know might be a lot of people around that you train with, but the worst thing you could probably do is, is hold a, a crazy conversation between imams or between sets, like really concentrate on yourself and concentrate on your breathing. You know, that's why I don't like headphones, but at the same time, the guys that wear headphones in the weight room, um, I understand because they're, they're usually locked in, right? Like that's okay. They don't want anybody bothering them. They concentrate on their breathing. Um, and that's a good point, right? Between those imams, you might have 30 seconds left. You need to use those 30 seconds. That's part of your training too. You know, yes, you're resting, but you really need to concentrate on your nasal breathing. Absolutely. Well, another you mentioned about the um, the posture too. Another thing that I've seen contribute a lot to muscle imbalance and then therefore, you know, poor breathing is sitting. So, what if, what is your view? Because you mentioned, you know, some of the the men and women that you work with are in administrative positions. What is your percept, or excuse me, your perspective on the impact of sitting and like, physical ill health? Yeah, I think I think sitting has been, you know, a huge factor in, you know, obviously our postural positions and video and also video games and gaming. I mean, even our guys, even our operators play video games still. Right. I mean, they're deployed overseas. They're still playing video games or might be sitting for hours at a time. Now, I know they're stand up desk and we have a lot of those at work and guys use them. But I also think that uh, we can't use the stand up desk all the time either, because, again, everything um depends on the person you know if you have a 240 pound guy and he's using a stand-up desk all day that might not be a good thing right you know he might develop inflammation in the ankles the feet the knees um so sitting may be a, a you know an okay thing but just using that stand-up desk or going the walk or, or or set a reminder on your phone or your watch that hey maybe you need to go for a five minute walk start moving a little bit um instead of just standing there all day just kind of move um, so, yeah, I think standing is very important. I think stand-up desks are great, um, but we have to use them uh, a little bit smarter than we do because uh, I've seen a lot of people just try to say, oh, I need to stand all day, and then their feet are aching you know, at the end of the day. Well, there's a reason why. You know, there's you know, 140-pounder might be able to handle that a little bit better than a 240-pounder. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about functional range systems. Are there any other mobility practices or philosophies that you like? Uh, yeah, um, I think body tempering. Is huge. Um, 
Donnie Thompson has a course. Uh, he, he put our PTs through and our PTs use it a lot with our guys is, is body tempering. I mean, again, it's an old powerlifting philosophy, but, uh, it works. You know, you got these 120 pound, huge pipes, right? And, you know, if you have tight pecs or you have your calves are killing you, like being able to control and roll that stuff on your calves and smash all that, just the knots and the fascia and loosen that stuff up. I found that to be very beneficial. I mean, I, I went through it myself. It is very painful, but man, afterwards, it is unbelievable. Um, the benefit that I've seen from that, and I've seen other guys uh, love as well. Um, so that's another one, uh, body tempering. And look that up, Donnie Thompson. Do you know Donnie Thompson? I do not know. Yeah, so Donnie Thompson used to be old. He's, he's a, a former power lifter. Um, yeah, check out body tempering. He has a lot of methods. He, de- he developed the, uh, the fat bell from Rogue Fitness. The, uh, you know, Sornex's center mass bell that they have. Yeah. With a handle on the inside. Yep. yep. Uh, Rogue's fat bell. Uh, he, he designed that. I don't know the patent and all that deal or what happened, but yeah, he's the one that, uh, designed the fat bell. Um, but yeah, the body tempering is the way to go. I think the, the photobiomodulation is, is starting to become huge. Um, the Nova Thor, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It looks like a light bed. It's not infrared. Um, but it's more like uh, low-level light therapy. Um, so basically, it almost looks like a looks like a tanning bed, but you you lay in it, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes. It it pretty much penetrates the skin, it penetrates the tissues, and uh, it promotes, you know, uh, recovery. It promotes uh, increase in ATP synthesis. Um, again, there's a lot of a lot of research still out there on that, but it's something that we're kind of diving into now. Um, but yeah, photobiomodulation is a big one uh, that's pretty popular in our building. Beautiful. I think look into that as well. Thank you. So yeah, absolutely. You mentioned about lying. So one of the the big things that I wanted to to kind of draw your experience on. I know your wife studied this um, with the athletes at the Olympic level. But tell me about the importance of sleep in the tactical space. Yeah, it's obviously you know sleep and nutrition is the, the low hanging fruit that needs to be taken care of before anything else. Um, now sometimes these guys, they, they, they aren't able to get the hours that they need. Right. And they might be training all night. Um, and it's ingrained in them that they need to come in early in the, in the morning and get their lift in and their training session. Um, and then they end up working all day. So they're, they're constantly in sleep debt. So that's why we get these things like recovery rooms and, you know, the, the Nova Thor beds where um, they have time to maybe catch a 15 or 20 minute nap or, or somehow just relax, close your eyes, catch up on sleep a little bit. Um, we got it. We got to able to get some small wins throughout the day. I mean, we know how the job is and we know sometimes we can't control that, but sleep is everything. So, you know, we try to preach that as much as we can. We use the aura ring with our guys. So we're able to track sleep and their HRV and if guys are falling behind, we can kind of, Hey, like, you know, what's going on here? You know, like, why aren't you, why aren't you getting at least seven hours of sleep at night? Why are you averaging four? And we might be able to catch something, right? Like something might be going on in their house. Um, they might sleep hot and you know, it, it's just stuff that that's why we track things is to be able to maybe find things or find problems that's going on with these guys. It's just not collecting data. It's just kind of catching those red flags. Right now, conversely, so you have, you know, the soldiers and the tactical athletes that you work with that are trying to get sleep, but obviously some of their operations get in the way. 
Going back to the Olympic athletes for a second, what was the importance of sleep with them? Performing there you at that go. High level? I mean, that's the thing. They have time. So they work on that one thing, right? These Olympic athletes work on that one thing and they're going to do everything they possibly can to get an advantage over the other. And that's, that's it, right? They got their nutrition dialed in. They have their sleep dialed in. Um, they do everything they can from a recovery aspect. They want to know the latest and greatest thing that's out there that they can try and use. Um, and they got their whole life surrounded and based on this one event or this one training day. And that's what they're working towards. And that's the difference where the operator, again, like they got a job to do. But at the same time, they're juggling a lot of different things where, you know, they have family life and they have um, they have work life and then they have to find time to train and then they have to find time to do this. I mean, there's a lot of things they're juggling there um, where an Olympic athlete is just, bam, like lasered in on one thing and they can just devote to that. So setting that the stage, so the people that we admire are Olympic athletes or professional sports people, you know, are given the time to rest, to recover, to sleep. With, uh, you know, a population, especially like police and fire that are going to be sleep deprived for 10, 20, 30 years, what's the correlation of sleep deprivation and injury? Uh, huge. It's, it's something that um, we see a huge correlation there between sleep um, and injury. You know, this, the stats that fatigue science put out and, and use them with their ready bands is, is crazy. I think anything less than six hours or, f- or five hours of sleep, your chance of injury and, and developing a virus is like 40 some percent or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but again, if for every hour that you don't, that you don't get below seven hours, the chances of injury and, and getting sick obviously increases. So they, you have that, right? But on the other end is what I like to look at. So if we know guys aren't getting sleep or we know our athletes, like for instance, use a, use a basketball team, for instance, like if we're getting these basketball players up at 4.30 or 5.30 a.m. to lift in a college and we know they stay up late to study, why in the heck are we still doing that? And it's the same thing with the operators, right? Like if we know they're not sleeping and they're getting, you know, they're averaging three hours or four hours a night. Why in the world are we programming high CNS activity lifts, um, hour and a half lifts, crazy high intensity sessions day in and day out? I think it's up to the professionals. <laughs> To really, okay, find out what needs to be adjusted and how we can kind of micro dose this thing where they can get the most bang for their buck. I think it, I think it goes both ways there. You know, we have to understand that. Yeah. Well, I think what applies to, you know, especially police and fire and, 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 you know, dispatch and doctors and nurses, all these shift workers that we have is taking fire specifically. We work, um, 24 on 48 off so basically every third day for our entire career we're awake and so just like you said you know we we tend to get the fitter guys tend to men and women tend to get hurt and i tell people like it's not yeah it's it's for no other reason than when you take your job seriously and you train for it you need that rest and recovery and if we're not allowing our responders to sleep because we overwork them which is what happens at the moment then it's not if it's when we are going to break and you see an absolute smorgasbord of injuries mental ill health physical ill health as our men and women progress into their career yeah and i and i think that's one thing that i see that if I could just ingrain it in people's brains when it comes to programming is there people do way too much high intensity activity and not enough low intensity activity. 
they think low intensity activity, they're not going to see any benefit from, and it's complete opposite. You know, it promotes recovery. Um, it promotes blood flow, which helps with recovery. It's helps, helps with longevity and, and, um, life expectancy and, and just overall health and fitness. Um, again, a lot of people, you know, they, I think walking is very underrated, you know, going out for a 30 minute walk, you know, getting your heart rate up anywhere from, you know, 120 to 150, you know, might not feel like much, but if you do that for 30 or 40 minutes, you know, three to four times a week, you know, that's huge for, for, for recovery. Right. I mean, I think this is often neglected. So I try to use like the 80, 20 rule, you know, I think 20% of your programming needs to be high intensity. 80% needs to be low intensity. Absolutely. Well, especially for us, when we come off shift, I, I made the same mistake. And it's actually Jeff Nichols, a Navy SEAL, mm-hmm. um, CSCS. I know Jeff really well. Yeah. So, so Jeff, the first uh, interview we did together, he made me realize, he was like, you can't come off shift and then go do Murph because you're <laughs> yeah. taking yeah. that that high stress level and you're adding stress to it. And I started changing the way I did it and realizing, okay, well, the second day is when I can program that kind of intensity and it, it was it was groundbreaking. Like you know, even if it was the program workout of the day, I'd be like, right, I'm doing sixty percent of intensity and, and weight today. And it was just like an active rest day. Then it was beautiful. Absolutely, and that's where it's like again, you can look at a watt or you can look at you know a metcon and be like, okay, like I'm not doing that percentage. I might be able to do it, but I'm gonna back off here. I might not do it there, and you can still do it. It's just you're you know your body. You know, like you know what you need and, and don't need. Um, and that plays a huge factor. And that's where people look at their HRV or they use O-Ring or Whoop or whatever device that they use. They look at their HRV for the day they wake up and they're like, oh, crap, like I'm in the red. I can't train hard today. And that's the complete wrong way to look at it. That just means how you're going to be able to recover after that training session for the day. So you got to look ahead. You can't just look at that particular day, right? Like if you're in the red this morning and you back off on a training session today, you know, that that's going to just help you be able to use, you know, more high intensity or more harder lift later in the week. I mean, you got to look long term instead of short term there when it comes to HRV. Yeah. Well, you also said something very pertinent with um, us being susceptible to viruses when we're sleep deprived. We've seen more deaths from COVID in, in our professions this year than any of the other things that normally kill us. And something I said at the very beginning is the way we work, our police, our fire, um, yeah, they're, they're not given the recovery time. I think we really need to look at the work week, especially in the fire service. I mean, they work 56 plus hour weeks minimum, most of them. Um, to, and, and they are such a vulnerable population. And look at the professions that we lent on this last year. Police, fire, doctors, nurses, dispatchers, all the people that we work into the ground. And we're wondering why they're dropping like flies. And you just, you know, hit the nail on the head. Our immunity, our resilience decreases with sleep deprivation. Absolutely. And and the sleep deprivation is, again, with everything going on in the world and the way this world operates, right? It's it's just go, go, go. You know, we never have time to slow down. Um, and it's, again, what what can you do for me now kind of world. So it's, um, I think, I think with COVID, right, obviously it was, it's terrible. It was terrible how many people died from it um, and still what's going on. But I also looked at the other end where I think it was some of the best times because we'll never probably get this back again. But the amount of people that I saw outside getting garage gyms, training, being with their family, um, it was wonderful to see. And I think it was so healthy for our operators just to be able to be home and and heal 
from, you know, from just the constant go was amazing to see. I know, you know, my family, my wife, we had a great time because I was able to spend time with them. I was training day in and day out, eating healthy, the getting out in the sun and the heat and really took advantage of that time. But the people that were married to their jobs and didn't have a healthy home, I think that really stood out during COVID as well. So we saw like two ends there. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the big things that I, I think I hope will be held on to is how many men and women used to sit in gridlock traffic to drive, you know, like hour, two hours away from their family to go sit in a cubicle and do exactly what they realize now they could do from their home. I mean, how much oh, more man. quality time has come out of that? I think it's huge. I think I think the online stuff, now, I think it's really COVID has completely changed the way we look at work. I think it really has. We constantly we constantly talk about it at work every day with, with you know, where we are. Um, I've heard people talk about it. I, you know, I've talked to other strength coaches during COVID that are completely miserable in the college scene just because of the amount of hours, what they got to be asked to do. You know, people are miserable with their jobs. And, and it's just like there's plenty of opportunity out there. You just got to have a little bit of, of get up and go and want to, and you can find millions and millions of ways to stream in uh, revenue and, and money and make money. You just have to go and do it. Absolutely. Well, I know with the, the men that you work with, you know, force multiplier is a big phrase that they use. And that's what I found from my own personal journey with this. I mean, I used to respond to one call at a time with my crew. Um, and it was amazing and I loved it. This project made me realize that I could help thousands of people for every conversation like this that we have. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the, the kind of philosophy. People think about how can they be a force multiplier in their own profession and be efficient. So rather than, as you said, standing in front of a, a bench coaching one athlete, how can you magnify your impact to help hundreds of athletes? Exactly. And that's exactly why, you know, we done with, we done with 13 bar, you know. Brilliant. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. You touched on nutrition, though, and I think that's a very pertinent point, especially after this last year, because the conversation that definitely didn't happen this last year was the resilience of the population and how obesity absolutely compounded, you know, a lot of these deaths. So, um, you know, what is your overall nutritional philosophy with the athletes that you train? Yeah, I mean, I think that that every diet out there, I mean, you, you see these, some of these fad diets and nothing's really, nobody can really be consistent and stay on something that's a grapefruit diet or something that, you know, you see keto, keto out there, but if you're really trying to, to become powerful and train power and strength, I mean, it's, it's hard, um, on a keto diet. I mean, there's things out there where you have to use professional dietitians and use them to your advantage and, and bounce questions off of because again there's a reason why they went to school for it and why they learned about it but i mean my own philosophy again it's it's very simple right i mean i i get up i you know i have a balanced meal you know i try to eat lean meat fruit vegetables um try to stay away from much sugar as i can and, and just do that on a daily basis. And it's more about consistency. You know, uh, yeah, I'll have a cheat meal here and there. Like you gotta, you gotta be happy. You gotta live a little bit, but at the same time, I mean, you have to stay healthy and you have to eat the right way. There's a reason why, you know, the McDonald's and Burger Kings and your fast food restaurants are huge in business because people, it, again, it goes back to like this world, the way this world is, it's go, go, go. Right. So nobody really, you know, plans ahead and preps food and, um, you know, finds the easy way out. So it's, it's again, let's just being consistent, prepping and, and looking ahead and, and being smart with your meals. Well, that, that can't be right because it wasn't complicated enough. You're saying that don't eat processed shit and eat fruit and vegetables and, and meat. 
So simple, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> and I guess it's the age of the internet, and, and you know, they see these people that that are on keto, and it's the new newest thing. I mean, I think I think Renaissance Periodization does a great job. Um, I think they're very popular, and and I think when it comes to any kind of diet, I think that's a good diet. Um, it's it's just some people need something to follow, and that's completely understandable, right? I mean, they need something to keep them accountable, and 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 that's okay. But again, it's it goes back to any weightlifting, you know, simple is better. Um, you know, keep things simple and, and be consistent and it'll pay off. Absolutely. All right. Well then one last area before we talk about 13 bar. Um, what about supplements? I'm a huge fan of Thorn. I just found them through Jeff as well. What about, um, for your athletes? Yeah. Thorn is huge. Um, we use clean athlete as well. Um, obviously everything we try to, to make it NSF certified, um, but Thorn is big, you know, that's for personally, I use Thorn. Um, I kind of point the guys that direction as well. Um, they just put out a great product. I don't, I don't think any other company out there can beat them when it comes to their supplements. Beautiful. Um, just for you specifically, which of their products do you use? Um, so I use the fish oil, their vitamin D, uh, multivitamin. Um, I, my wife uses basic prenatals, which we think play a huge um, role into just our overall uh, development, um, baby development. We had a recent uh, little girl. She's two months old, but she's like 97th percentile with weight and height. And we're like, yep, like it was it was just eat, clean eating and, and uh, taking those thorn supplements and doing the right things. I think it plays a huge role into how babies develop and how they sleep at night. And, um, you know, we can thank thorn supplements for that for sure. That's fantastic to hear. All right. Well, then you mentioned your wife. So you guys have 13 bar performance. So tell me why you started that and then tell me about it so people can access it themselves. Well, I mean, driving in day in and day out um, on onto the base and seeing, um, you know, these guys and gals out here doing just just terrible push ups, terrible sit ups, um, just crushing themselves when it comes to running and and I'm like, man, like, I wonder how many people out there in the world just need training when it comes to just the, the tactical population that could be fire, that could be law enforcement. I know they need it. How do we put out some quality stuff? Because we knew Jeff, we knew Jeff was doing it. We knew Stu Smith was putting out some good stuff. Jeff was a good, is a good friend of mine. And, you know, and I was like, um, you know, I, I want to start something, start something of my own. So we, we looked into uh, a name, and um, my wife came up with the name 13 Bar, which is basically the 13 bars on the flag. That's where we got that from. I thought it was a genius idea on her part, um, so all credit to her. And then the logo, we, we developed a logo, which is um, designed by one of my former swim athletes. Um, so once we got that rolling, we decided, hey, like, let's put this thing up online and put it live and, and put out some quality content. I didn't want to put out – you know, workouts of the day. I didn't want to put out anything on a daily basis. I wanted to make sure that we put out smart periodized programming, um, that made sense and something that people can follow and that's safe and also kind of lead somebody in the right direction. And, and that's exactly what we've done. I mean, we've reached 70 countries so far and, you know, we're going steady and we, we pride ourselves in answering as many questions as we can, because we know people have them and, you know, it's hard when you develop an online business because, again, it's, it's tough when you're not able to see the people and coach them. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I tell them, hey, send a video, send your questions, um, and I can answer them the best as I can. I take pride in that. So it's, uh, it's something that we wanted to do. 
We wanted to help as many people as possible, and it's been great. I mean, the people that I've connected with um, have become friends. Um, you know, that they've they've followed us. You know, I think it's we're almost two years in now, and and we're still going strong, and they're still jumping on our programs. I mean, we have a customization program that they can jump on where it's more one on one training, and uh, we use an app for that. And it's it's been awesome, man. I mean, it's just to get out. It's tough as a coach to do the online stuff, but. You know, I think I, I saw a need for it because money wasn't the issue. It was it was a need. And I felt like, you know, the, the military across the world needed that. And especially our military here in the U.S., uh, we, you know, we need quality. We need quality coaching. We need to be trained the right way. And any, any way we can keep our soldiers healthy, I, I want to do that. Well, I love it. Well, it's funny you mentioned the, even the push-ups. Like that was an epiphany I had only only a few years ago. And it blows my mind that for all these years we were taught, you know, everyone normally has their hands right level with their shoulders about, you know, three feet apart. And then you realize, well, that's not how you bench press. Just if you fall over, push yourself up. That's not how you do that either. So <laughs> I don't know how, like, internationally we learned such shitty push-up form in the first place. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't – I mean, heck, I didn't – even through working my internships in college, I was never taught how to do a proper push-up, right? I mean – you start to realize like, okay, like body positioning, how you brace, where you engage, um, shoulder position, all that stuff plays a role into every exercise. It carries over to everything, you know, spine position, head position, and just people just don't realize that. And they don't lock in and they don't have the intent in, you know, a basic push up or a basic pull up. And those are the basics that you need because it carries over to everything else. Yeah, I forget who it was. One of my other military guests, who I think, was in the coaching space as well, was saying that you know the military itself is to blame for some of it because it was you know all these high volume push ups in the PT Absolutely. instead of taking the time like you know cut that in half and make them do full range of motion you know good bridge uh, push ups so that they're actually building that strength and building that movement pattern. Well, that's the thing. The PFT and all, all these. I mean, the Army. You can see it anywhere. Navy, Marines. It doesn't matter. They, you know, get as many push ups as you can. Get as many pull ups as you can. Um, it's it's just com- it's just slop. It's complete shit. And um, I don't know if we'll ever see a change in that, you know, and, um, I mean, obviously the army and, and the other branches are changing some things, but I still think there's plenty of room to improve. Um, but yeah, I think it is ingrained in them. I think it's just from the get go. They're just trying to get as many as they can. And they think that means something and it doesn't mean anything. It just means how many shitty pull-ups you can do. That's basically all it means. Yeah. And I think, you know, with, with this last year as well, you mentioned a lot of people have bought equipment, but they don't have the programming. They don't have the coach's eye on them. So I think, you know, 13 bar and like you said, Jeff's programs and Stu's programs, these are all great options now for people to apply the equipment they have in their house or the garage to, you know, a coach with a, you know, a sound knowledge of programming. Now you have a recipe for success. Absolutely. Beautiful. So people listening, where can they find 13 bar? So you can find us on Instagram, you know, thir- at 13 bar strong. Um, and we, uh, also, you know, we have our website where all of our programs are located and everything. So 13 bar performance.com. Um, and you can find everything on there, but you know, all of our content and, and knowledge and stuff like that we post is on our Instagram and that can lead you to our website. But yeah, our website, 13 bar performance.com. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions before we let you go. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be pertaining to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Um, I think one of my favorite books that I've ever read um, is completely off topic. It's not even strength conditioning, but it's it's uh, wild, wild at heart. Um, 
It's a great book. It basically talks about as men, you know, what were we put on this earth to do? You know, we we're put on this earth to gather and hunt and love and, and pursue love. I mean, it's very, it's a very, very good. It's, it's, it's a faith based book, but there's a lot of eye opening content in there. Um, and it's something that my wife got me to read and I still carry it with me to this day. So I definitely recommend that one. Brilliant. All right. What about a, a movie and or documentary? Oh man. Okay. Movie. Uh, crap. What comes to mind here? Movie. It's the program. Um, the football, it's, it's a football based movie. It's probably one of the best football movies ever. Um, that's the first thing that came to mind for some reason. And then what's the other question? Uh, documentary. If you have one documentary, uh, let's see. I like free solo, man. Free solo. It was awesome. Have yeah, you seen was, that one with the, 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 uh, the guy, Alex with no faces. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. I would still love to get him on the show one day. Talk about fear. I mean, my God. Oh man. It'd be, <laughs> yeah. It'd be unbelievable. But yeah, yeah I mean, m- movies nowadays. I mean, I, I watch more kind of documentaries and listen to podcasts and actually sit down and watch TV more. So the movies things was, is a tough question because I'm, I'm trying to think of any better ones there, but, um, I mean, sports movies was always popular with me. Um, yeah, I love watching. I love watching all the older movies. My wife thinks I'm crazy. She's like, man, she's like, I don't even remember these things because she's so younger than me. And I was like, I love the. Uh, I was a big horror movie guy when I was younger. I loved watching like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth, and it amazes me the people that de- like develop those films. Like they're, you know, they're twisted minds. Like how in the world did they come up with some of these ideas? You know? Yeah. yeah. So I, res- I respect some of that. Well, it's funny because I was in the same same kind of genre when I was uh, in my teens, I think like 16, 17. And then I kind of had this realization like, you know, why am I entertained by, you know, this this cabin full of teenagers <laughs> getting murdered? And that's kind of stuck with me. And then you enter the fire service and you see that shit for real and then it really turns you off. But that, it is, yeah. you know, the, the, the storytelling is interesting, but there's a certain point, I think, in, in movie making where you kind of have to catch yourself and be like, why, why after a hard day's work do I feel like unwinding watching, you know, human centipede? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like I'm trying to think of like, okay, you think of Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm pretty sure like he had the, like those exact dreams. I think, I think I read it somewhere where he, uh, that's how he kind of made those movies and those ideas was his dreams were like that. So it's kind of interesting to see people's ideas put to, to action. Um, but I mean, I have a picture, my, my wife thinks I'm crazy. I posted every Halloween. I have a picture of me. I think I was maybe five years old. I had a, a Freddy Krueger doll. So I didn't, I didn't have anything else, but I had a Freddy Krueger doll and people were like, that's the creepiest, that's the creepiest photo I've ever seen. It helps me so. sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brilliant. All right. Well then next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, that's a good one. Um, man, there's so many good people out there though. Um, I know you've had Jim Willer on, right? Yes. Yeah. He was amazing. I love, I love Jim. Um, man, that's a great question. Uh, I can't think of anybody right now, man, because there's so many good people out there that you can bring on. And you probably already had them on, but, um, I'm trying to think for the, especially for the military population. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of anybody that I've been researching lately. I've, well, okay, okay. Um, I, I'm thinking of uh, what's his name, Alex Rowe. The, Alex uh, Rowe, the Dirty Jobs. You know the guy that done the Dirty Job show. Oh, uh, Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe. Yes. yes, I think having him on would be awesome. 
Absolutely. I reached out to him a while ago now, but I mean, he's been doing so much television recently. I need to, I need to resend it because I think he would be, he would be probably, you know, if, if the email actually made it to him, I think he'd probably love to do something when it came to our profession too. Exactly. I think especially, especially nowadays, um, you know, the, the, some of the content he's putting out in his book and stuff. I mean, it's, uh, I think people need to hear it. I think people need to hear his voice a little bit more because he, he, he's saying all the right stuff right now. Absolutely. Well, even um, he, one of his episodes was memorializing the Prescott 19, the wildland firefighters that were killed. So, yeah, beautiful. All right. Well, then, last question. What do you do to decompress? Um, decompress, usually, right now, I like to, right now, it's, it's pretty much the blacksmithing. Um, it's, it's gathering this stuff up and really learning how to, to use my hands and, and develop these blades. Um, it's keeping my mind occupied. I mean, I'm, I'm, busy at work but to me i am decompressing like it's calm to me it's calm to come out here and and get my mind not wrapped around any kind of strength conditioning or programming or worry about anything at work um it's it's something that i'm enjoying right now so i think that's why having a a hobby is 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 very important you know and um i know people say you know reading or the beach or whatever but to me like i love to work that's just who i am um but at the same time, I want to get away from what I do on a daily basis. And, and having this hobby, is, I think, is going to be really good for me. And it's something new that I started, right? Like I've been completely surrounded and smothered by strength and conditioning my entire career. And being in the military has given me a little bit of time to, to get outside of that. And it's been a blessing. And it's, it's really going to help me, I think. Well, just reminding me as well, one of the other coaches, and I forget who it was, mentioned that the coaching was exhausting and in that particular um, arena that they worked they would actually carve out like a 30 minute decompression session before they went home so they could switch from coach mode to you know family mode and we, and we have the same problem especially in police and fire where we there's no you know home time demob decompress you know we're constantly on so being very deliberate with with taking that time so do you see that with some of your operators and and having the kind of try and help them switch from whatever mode they were in to to either you know going home or even being an athlete in the gym yeah absolutely i think i think with the way it's laid out here uh, around base i mean pretty much everywhere you live you're at least 30 minutes from base right so i think having that drive um to able to be able to decompress like that is a game changer um I know I've always tried to live close to universities because, again, money is an issue and don't want to spend much money on gas. But um, I've come to really, really um, enjoy, you know, the 30 minute to 45 minute rides just to be able to to get my mind off of everything at work, change modes, get ready for the family and, um, you know, get ready for the next day. So, yeah, it's played I think it's played a huge role with these operators. I think it helps a lot just to kind of okay, let's breathe for a second, right? Like, and, and I think traffic has a lot to do. I mean, you can't control traffic, but um, getting away from that and being able to drive on the interstate or getting, getting away from traffic really helps um, decompress as well. But listen to all your favorite podcast or getting your mind off of it. Yeah, I think the, the ride really helps. Love it. Yeah, a big game changer for me was podcasts because you know, now I'm you know, in, a, in a positive conversation. I'm listening to someone else's podcast, but um, you know, it's it's so good. Whereas if you listen to the radio and the news and you keep getting bombarded with oh, all gosh, the things man. you should be stressed about, then you're going to be worse when you get home. Well, and that's why you know I posted that thing uh, recently about the morning routine is is you know, hey, like 
if anything, you know, wake up early, open up the curtains, get outside, get some sunshine. I mean, read something, but my God, don't read the news. Don't watch the news. Get away from that shit. It is so cancerous, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sean, I want to say thank you so much. It's been a, a great conversation and, you know, learning from especially the military side. Like, sadly, I think police and fire, we've got some amazing, you know, strength conditioning people sprinkled amongst our profession, but it's so siloed that there's no... There's no unity, I think, between so many of these departments, whereas the military, I think, is a great space for us to reach into and, you know, pull knowledge, pull research, whatever it is, and then apply it into our profession. So thank you for being so generous with your time today and telling your story. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had a blast. And, and thank you for having me on. And, and to all your listeners, man, if, if you ever need anything, um, you know, you ever have any questions about strength conditioning or what route to take, or if you need any kind of um, direction, you know, reach out. I'm always willing to help. <laughs>